You can choose to not change the breath in any way, but you can also breathe in a way that's more conducive to activating your vagal tone or your parasympathetic nervous system, our breath and digest nervous system. So you can inhale through your nose, with your smell of roses, and then breathing through your mouth like you're blowing out birthday candles, two to four times longer than the inhale. So that prolonged exhale also helps you practice pursed lip breathing, which literally stems open airways and allows you to really fully exhale. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Hello, friends. Please help me welcome our guest on today's episode of Medicine, Marriage, and Money, Dr. Nichang Liang. She is an award-winning pulmonologist, cancer survivor, mindfulness teacher, volunteer faculty at the UC San Diego Medical Student Run Free Health Clinic, and the founder of the Mindful Healthcare Collective. She is a supportive and loving wife to a vice president of information technology at Reliant Funding and a mother to two strong little girls. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. So great to be here. So before we delve into your story, I like to ask all my guests, what is your definition of marital interdependence? Or in other words, what makes a successful marriage? The establishment of unconditional love and support in each other's love languages. Okay. Brief and succinct. Okay. Like it. Love it. Now tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? Where are you from? I am a immigrant uh, from Taiwan. Came here when I was five and grew up mostly on the East Coast. Knew from a very young age I wanted to be a physician. My aunt was a uh, Air Force colonel, um, also a pathologist, and so she was a tremendous source of inspiration for me and my career aspirations. And went to medical school, went straight through, uh, and ended up in San Diego for the rest of my postgraduate training but then during my second year of pulmonary fellowship, I was diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer, took a year off and came back to medicine with a newfound passion for wellness, burnout prevention, mind-body medicine, integrative medicine, based off of that year off of internal and external healing. Right. Yeah. And we're going to get into that. After we talk about you and your husband, I want to know what it looked like when you first met him and what, you know, how you fell in love. Tell us a little bit about that. I first met him in, I want to say eighth grade. Oh my gosh. Eighth grade. <laughs> but there was no, there was no, there were, there were no feelings um, that were exchanged at that time. Um, the 
Maryland volleyball circuit for East Asians, particularly Chinese Americans or Taiwanese Americans is quite little. And so we played volleyball together on the Chinese school team that during Chinese school practices for volleyball. And uh, he was the friend of a good friend of mine's brother. <laughs> friend of my friend's brother. And, uh, and all of us played volleyball. So it was really through volleyball that we met. Um, and he's gonna be embarrassed that I'm saying this, but I'm gonna say it anyway that I, my first impression of him was that he was a cocky, biracial, half Chinese, half Caucasian person because he drove a red Del Sol in high school. He did what in high school? He drove a red Del Sol, a red Honda Del Sol in high school. It seemed pretentious and unnecessary. And so that was my first kind of initial impression of him. But I also realized that he was a really talented volleyball player. And um, it wasn't until my second year of medical school that those mutual friends came back into town that we went clubbing during winter break that year. And the rest is history. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you were on the same volleyball team or you played volleyball with him in Maryland during the eighth grade. It was going into like high school. Uh, going into high school, you thought he was pretentious, cocky. Tell me what, so a, Hon, a Hyundai Del Sol, that is a little bit pretentious. I don't, I don't know cars that much. It's a tiny little toy sports car Honda has. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. And then, and then you reconnect. Where is it you reconnect? Uh, this was still in uh, the DC metro area. Okay. And so how did, how did that, I mean, what did that look like? You, you went clubbing and then you fell in love with him? <laughs> kind of. So after that, that fortunate night thereafter, we basically just hung out every weekend, whether it was with friends or going to see basketball games or movies with my med school friends. Um, there was just something that we were doing every weekend. And then we had the talk, the talk of like what's going on and mutual catharsis of expression of, of life for each other. And then, um, and then the love came shortly after I, according to him anyway, for this aspect of, of our love story is that he knew that I was the one when I planned a surprise birthday party for him with like 30 of his good friends in Maryland at the time. And I had to tell him and break the surprise to him because he was on a critical work period with some computers crashing and his work ethic. I had no way to pull him away from work unless I told him what was actually happening, which was you have to stop working right now because there are 30 people waiting for you at this restaurant right now. <laughs> and so finally he conceded and came with me and was very, very touched at the gesture, even though I had to ruin the surprise so that I could actually get him there. Wow. Okay. And what stage of life were you in? You said medical school or? Yep. I was in my second year of med school. I think it was. Yep. Okay. Second year in medical school. And I don't know 
if you're aware of this, Ni Chang, but you have been mentioned in two, at least two of my previous podcasts. <laughs> when I interviewed um, Dr. Vicky Chan Kim and Dr. Peter Kim, you were mentioned each time. I think it was probably around the same time at med school, right? Where they met and you introduced them to them. Okay, but back to your story, because I love how you call this the talk, the catharsis, the mutual expression of like for each other. That's awesome. That's how, and then, and then, and then after that, you guys, you guys fell in love. <laughs> yeah, and the way that he told me he loved me is kind of, uh, kind of funny too. And he may feel embarrassed that I'm telling this, but it was very endearing nonetheless to me. Um, because around the time where he, when he had decided to tell me that he loved me, he had purchased a new car. And he really liked this new car. This time it was less pretentious. This time it was a Honda CRV, much more practical, much more room, not red. And he basically started off by saying, you know, I really, really love my new car, but I realized that I love you more. <laughs> Something to that effect. And I was like, um, Thanks, I think. <laughs> wow, that was his expression of love to you. Yes, and I'm sure he's very embarrassed about how that came out. Uh, but nevertheless, I still find it very endearing to this day. And he has more than made up for that perhaps lacking in eloquence of that expression of love. <laughs> And then let's delve a little bit more into your cancer diagnosis because you did kind of, you know, when you introduced yourself, you definitely mentioned that and so how that kind of changed, that year off changed and shaped the way you showed up when you returned into the medical field and probably even beyond all aspects of your life. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was definitely a pivotal moment in my life where in retrospect, because this is now more than nine plus years ago that the diagnosis happened. I realized that I was going 200 miles an hour. I was in pulmonary critical care fellowship at the time. So lots of sleepless nights. I had a very young child at the time. My eldest at the time was a year and a half, but I definitely remember trying to juggle breastfeeding while being successful in a pulmonary critical care fellowship knowing that I had come out of internal medicine residency as a very competent physician, as a chief medical resident, saw myself as a leader, but in doing so, giving 200% of myself being selfless. And so there was this self-sacrificial or martyrdom that I embraced and that I embodied that I thought was a guaranteed way for my own career success. But my body would have none of it. My body basically rebelled and told me, if you keep going at 200 miles an hour, not taking care of yourself, I'm gonna put you into the ground. Mm -hmm. I knew that my lifestyle was definitely not sustainable. And so that year was a recalibration of how I would return to medicine knowing that I had to change my own relationship with myself on a very deep level so that I could thrive 
in medicine and beyond. And so it was with that kind of experience, that suffering, that year of five months of chemo, three surgeries, healing externally and then internally with the help of my therapist after all the treatment had been done in helping me deal with the uncertainty, the fear, the anxiety of the unknown. And coming back into medicine, realizing that self-care is imperative. You can't take care of others unless you care for yourself first and foremost. And I feel like I lived that experience in a very literal way. Uh, And that's kind of how I became passionate about the mindfulness work that I do, the integrative medicine fellowship that I'm currently part of, um, the holistic aspects of medicine that I try to incorporate with every patient encounter since I got back from cancer treatment. And so you took one year, you said one year, full year off of medicine during that time for your chemo and your three surgeries, your therapy. And how how did this change your relationship with your husband? It was definitely a really, really tough time. But the year, in retrospect, really brought us closer together. He was unconditionally there for me in physical presence, even though for the first couple of rounds of chemo, and a lot of people do this, a lot of people drive themselves to chemo, a lot of people actually work through chemo. And for him, knowing that his love language is action, he expressed it as being the one to drive me to chemo, sitting with me in a regular chair while I was in the plush, comfy, poofy chemo infusion chair, every single chemo infusion, no matter how long the infusion took. And he drove me home. So he would take off work for those few hours so that he could be there for me physically, supporting me going and going home from each of those. And of course, through all the surgeries, he was there. So it brought us much closer together on a very emotional level. Um, I think it deepened our love very much. Uh, This is basically a moment of our lives where we were upholding our vows to each other in terms of in sickness and in health. And and then how did this experience also kind of shape how you changed, or you said you kind of showed up differently as a pulmonologist when you went back to work? How has this affected, you know, how you treat patients? Tremendously in that I completely realize and see, and also there's plenty of evidence that stress and anxiety and other mental health issues plays a huge role in someone's health. And stress and anxiety, we know, also plays huge roles in different chronic lung diseases, too. And so having more of a prioritization of someone's well-being on a mental health standpoint in my pulmonary practice, I think it's very unique. And in some respects, I wish that this was the way that It should have been from day one of practicing allopathic pulmonary medicine, checking in with stress and anxiety and other mental health issues, because when someone's mental health is not optimized, it affects everything else, and the lungs are not immune to that. 
Oh, so how do you do that? Like, does your patient have to be receptive to that? Or do you, do you bring that up on a daily basis with your patients? Yeah, so it depends on the patient, of course, because there's a personalized approach that I try to implement every time I see a patient. Um, I will ask them point blank, like, how how's your stress level? How's your anxiety level? And it's kind of easy to do, especially during a global pandemic. And it comes up naturally in conversation. When I get the sense that there's something amiss that they have an increase in life stressors. Mentally, I will reconfigure the quote unquote plan for the appointment so that there is space that's protected for them to be able to emote and to communicate what they're going through, even if it has nothing to do seemingly with their lung health. And so that's kind of how I approach the asking about stress and anxiety is if I need to make time for it, then it gets built in and prioritized as part of the clinic visit. Okay. Yeah. And you bring up, you know, you bring, brought up the pandemic. I, right when you said that I could, I envisioned a Facebook post you had posted like back in, was it April? I and mean, when you were a patient, weren't you a patient yourself? You had gotten uh, appendicitis, right? Was that an eight? Was that an April, like the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, that was insane. <laughs> Tell us about that experience. It was weird because I hear and and I'm a proud patient of UC San Diego healthcare system. Um, ever since I was there for uh, internal medicine residency, and I got all my cancer care there, so all my records are there, and it made sense that if I had unremitting right lower quadrant pain that I would go to the healthcare system that has taken care of me through thick and thin already. And just pulling up to the emergency room, there were stations set out uh, outside with just one nurse checking temperatures, doing the initial screening. And I was the only one. My husband was still parking in the car. And then going into the waiting room of this emergency room that I had seen physically with my own eyes be filled to capacity, but being completely empty now because of the pandemic. And then going into the emergency room area was relatively quiet, felt that I got expeditious care. And this part gets a little bit hazy because I think I was really, really sleepy because I was up for so long with pain that, um, that I remember getting the CT scan and the emergency room doctor just telling me that it was appendicitis and that I would need to be admitted and have surgery. And so this was a relief to me in that there was a reason for this right lower quadrant pain and that it would get taken care of. And so the surgical team, the anesthesiology team, um, they came in, I went for surgery and I remember waking up in recovery um, with just a very skeleton crew of nurses and aides. And I was definitely still under the influence of the sedatives that they had given me. <laughs> but I, I do distinctly remember getting pushed um, through the hallways and 
having worked and been a resident, a busy resident, a busy pulmonary fellow through these hallways, remembering the cacophony of these sounds of dinging and lots of talking and lots of traffic in the hallways and just not experiencing any of that. It was kind of eerily quiet. No call room bells. There wasn't any sense of a hectic pace at all. It was eerily quiet. But yeah, surgery went fine. Um, And I went home the next day and made a quick recovery, thank goodness, because of laparoscopic technological advancements. And yeah, so grateful that uh, got really excellent care and was only overnight in the hospital. Yeah, we could call you call you a professional patient. <laughs> yes, on, on many different levels. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of physicians. We we honestly early on, especially early on in our career, we do not have that uh, that ability. You can you can truly you know sympathize empathize with your pa- patients of what it's like to be on the other side, as well as all this wellness stuff you bring into them. I think it's amazing. And tell us a little bit about how you and your husband support each other on a day to day basis. Day to day, we always text each other that we love each other. It almost has become a game where who says it first on text message and we'll like add throw down comments like boom, 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 or like boom shakalaka, like I love you, boom shakalaka, like I beat you to it. <laughs> so it almost becomes a game of the uh, text message profession of love. Um, there's always a bit of marital banter. Always. We are very, very quick-witted with each other. Almost to a comedic standpoint. But I think one of the most important things day to day is that we're both introverts. And we can be introverts together or separate. But it's very clear that in order to recharge for what we do the very next day that we recharge in preparation for work more separately. So he does have a man cave and he will go in there and do whatever he needs to like watch sporting events. He's a huge sports fanatic as well as an ex gamer, but he still dabbles in, in video games here and there. He might go to his koi pond to feed a fish. And for me, I need my own space to read for leisure or write or do yoga or go exercise. That's more on the day-to-day. So I think that the, our ability to give each other space in a very unsaid way has been one of the key successes to our marriage is this mutual understanding of giving each other space. That is so important because I think me and my husband are actually both introverts too. I don't often put the labels, but we both need our own space too. And I think it took me a little while, maybe a few years to realize that, yeah, it's okay for not spending all the hours of our evening times together. He does his thing. I do my thing. And then we're happier when we're together. So that's so, so important. Such an important um, thing that you guys have discovered about each other. 
And then let's talk about your mindfulness too. And I know you've gone through mindfulness training. You're a mindfulness. Um, what do you call it? Is it a mind? Are you a mindfulness coach or teacher? I would say teacher or instructor. I definitely would call myself a coach. Okay. You're a mindfulness teacher. And so tell us a little bit about what that looks like. And then also, you know, how that's kind of shaped who you are as a wife, mother, and a physician. Knowing that I wanted to teach mindfulness very shortly after my cancer journey ended, I started working on myself with regards to incorporating aspects of mindfulness initially as a tool, but then really working towards embodying mindfulness in all aspects of my life. And what that looked like over the last nine years has been taking a variety of different training programs, like the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction teacher training at UC San Diego Center for Mindfulness, and then working with Ron Epstein and Nick Krasner from the Mindful Practice programs over at University of Rochester, uh, and then going through some mentoring programs on the pathway to teacher certification for, for mindfulness-based stress reduction. And in terms of how it has influenced me, there is something so powerful about being a teacher or an instructor of something where you are truly able to practice what you preach, practice what you teach, embody what you teach because of all of the known strong literature out there for the benefits of mindfulness on health and well-being and also in cancer survivorship too. So I like to say that it was like my own evidence-based way of optimizing my health and well-being and then from there it informed my realization of my values of compassion and authenticity that I try to live my life by. And that starts with compassion for myself because pre-cancer, I realized that I really didn't have a lot of self-compassion. It's a work in progress. I'm still working on self-compassion, still um, a challenge for me, but definitely working on it, naming it as an issue and holding it with kindness and curiosity through a mindful lens. For the dabbling and then more formal teaching aspect of it, I'm now a physician entrepreneur that is ongoing journey. I am really grateful for all of the lessons that I've learned thus far, some of which have not been pleasant, but nevertheless always in a way of growth and reframing as opportunities for learning. It's been a tremendous learning exercise and also a test of my own self-compassion and boundary setting abilities. So I feel really grateful to be able to say that I am a physician entrepreneur and I have a business in teaching mindfulness and also in public speaking on a local, regional, national level and leading workshops. And and then in the practice of medicine, being able to literally teach mindfulness in like one to two minutes with my patients during their clinic visit. Even if it's a telemedicine visit, I can lead patients in a brief meditation 
Okay. Now, and I, you know, I have actually got been in, I think, two of your mindfulness um, classes before in my um, summer coaching program with Sunny. And for those of for those of our listeners who are not familiar with this mindfulness work and teaching, can you briefly describe like what kind of things you can do in one to two minutes? You know, what kind of exercises you can do or, or just describe like, what does it mean? What does that mean that you're a mindfulness teacher? You help patients or clients with that. So mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present moment without any judgment. And it's a skill that can be learned and applied by anyone, anytime, anywhere, doing anything or not doing anything at all. So it's super accessible and you can be mindful any moment. Quick tips on how to become mindful or incorporate mindfulness. So anytime you are finding yourself in a stressful or uncomfortable situation, you can simply notice your breath. So noticing the breath at the nostrils. You can choose to not change the breath in any way, but you can also breathe in a way that's more conducive to activating your vagal tone or your parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and digest nervous system. So you can inhale through your nose like you're smelling roses and then breathing through your mouth like you're blown out birthday candles. Two to four times longer than the inhale. So that prolonged exhale also helps you practice pursed lip breathing, which literally stents open airways and allows you to really fully exhale. So you can do that type of breathing three to four times and paying attention to the breath. Then you can use acronyms, really quick acronyms, like mindset practices that can get you out of a fight or flight experience which we default to whenever we encounter something that's stressful or uncomfortable. So the one that I've developed, which literally only takes 30 seconds, is using the acronym BAT. So B for breathe. So breathe in a mindful way, noticing the breath. A is to attend. So attending to yourself, naming what it is that you are feeling from body sensations to the emotions that you have to even seeing if you can watch your thoughts as if they were clouds passing through the sky. Then T is for transition. So then you can transition to greater skillful action as opposed to reaction to greater skillful response that may be made available to you because you paused, breathed, and attended to yourself. That's beautiful. And so speaking of, uh, well, after you talked about mindfulness, is it also possible to be mindful with your money? And we, we, we know a little bit about your money views earlier when you were talking about that little, what was it called? The soul, the little red Honda Del Sol. Tell us about how you and your husband are mindful with your, with your money. That is a great, he has uh, major in finance from his college days. So it's helpful because he is our number cruncher and he 
takes care of setting up the technological advancements that enable us to have direct deposit and auto pay. And yeah, so I would say that he is the financial expert. For me, I definitely have a propensity for buying nice things. And I'm grateful for him in terms of reminding me about long-term goals, saving up for our girls' 529s, our own retirement. He's a fabulous reminder of delayed gratification. So before I make a purchase, I try to take a deep breath mindfully. Somewhat helps me to distance myself from the impulsive buy and then actually buying something that's an investment piece or that is something that we truly need. What kind of things do you like to buy in Yuchang? I like to buy purses. Okay. So during the pandemic, I think that for whatever reason, purses have been catching my eye and rapidly growing a nice purse collection. Um, <laughs> other things that I like to buy are things related to my paddleboarding hobby. So I started paddleboarding about two years ago and I go at least once a week. When it's warmer, I go multiple times a week. And so I have three paddleboards. I really don't need three paddleboards. I'm just one person, but need is a subjective word. And so each one has a different purpose. I have an inflatable for easy portability and for friends to use. I have, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I have a, a hard top that is more for stability, for rougher water, for ocean paddling. And then I have what I call my race board, which is pointier and narrower and lighter and goes a lot faster, but it's a lot more tippy. So balance is more challenging on that particular board. And then I have my relatively expensive paddle that I gifted myself last year after my very first paddle board competition. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're serious. No, I, I mean, they're, so they're all different. They're all, I would, uh, some people would probably say, yeah, you need all of those. I mean, you're traveling for the rougher waters and for your competitions. And then, okay, and so, and, but your husband reminds you, okay, look at our long-term goal. We got to put our money towards this. And then you still take that deep breath and you still buy nice things, but I guess you budget in, in. you're saying, what you're saying is you kind of have a budget for it. Is that what you're saying? You guys kind of agree to save and then spend on the things that bring you joy. Yeah, it, we used to have like an actual number, but I think that number since the pandemic, has fallen a bit by the wayside. And we're definitely in, because of the uncertainty of the pandemic and the uncertainty of the economy, we're definitely more in a saving mode right now, but with room for continuing to invest in our interests. So he's a Koi fanatic. He is training to be a Koi judge. And what that means is that he is an apprentice judge for show koi. So similar to the Westminster Dog Show, where there are dog show judges, he is training to be 
a koi judge for koi shows. And so he is undergoing this training process and he needs to judge a certain number of shows across the country. Um, he has his own koi pond that he dug himself. Actually, this is the second koi pond that he has dug himself. Like we rented like a, I don't know, what are those things called? Diggers. <laughs> dug a hole and it is now a koi pond like a little cat bobcat type thing yes a bobcat my dad has one so i i know i wish you were closer because then i could have just borrowed it from you <laughs> so yeah so he he is super into koi uh and he has grand plans for our future home improvements of having this wraparound koi pond and he like will give talks and he has his own facebook page on koi it's called g koi and he will make commentary about koi and use fancy japanese terms that i am slowly picking up on so so this like this marriage also works because of our unconditional support of each other's interests, however random or weird they may be. <laughs> uh, and that, that shows up in terms of, of donating uh, time that would otherwise be spent together to help foster and grow our individual passions. So we can grow within our own interests and our own hobbies but not necessarily together and that's okay so like we're growing together but independent of and time and space he likes the koi and you like paddleboarding and while those to me seem like well why can't you paddleboard next to the koi i guess that's kind of i mean the koi gotta have a little pond right and then paddleboard you gotta go to the big ocean two different things but yeah, I love it. You guys do it. You allow each other to have your own hobbies and you can come together and be happy together. I could paddleboard in a really, really big koi pond, but I don't think the fish would be really happy with huge blade skimming in the water and this huge, massive whale looking shadow. <laughs> and both of those things actually sound very mindful to me. Paddleboarding, like you could do, you do, I've seen pictures of you do like yoga poses on your paddleboard and then having the koi pond right there to just like sit next to and look at. Oh my gosh. I would love to have a koi pond. I don't know if they would be, they would go for that here in Dallas, but especially with the cold weather. I mean, do they, can they handle the cold weather? Uh, it depends. And I can definitely have him um, talk to you about that some more. The koi will uh, will swim to different depths depending on the ambient temperature of the of the water. So if it's like really hot in San Diego, like we had the Santa Anas, um, then they will go down deep to stay cool. And then when it's cold, they are quote unquote hibernating in that they don't eat as much. Um, they're not swimming as fast and they're closer to the surface of the water. That's fabulous. Well, do you have any any take home points or any advice you wanna give our listeners today, things we might have touched on or haven't touched on in regards to 
medicine, marriage, money, mindfulness? Yeah, so with the self-care lessons that I've learned, the whole adage of you owe it to yourself, to your spouse, to your loved ones, to prioritize taking care of yourself first and foremost so that you can show up authentically and fully be present for your loved ones, your patients, whatever it is that you do, especially if you're in the serving profession. And that investing in each other in a way that provides for space and unconditional support in the fostering of unique hobbies definitely pays off in the end, even if it does add a little bit more expense to your budget. Oh, I love it. I love it. Take care of yourself so you can show up authentically to serve your patients, your children, your spouse, and allow each other to invest in unique hobbies. <laughs> show that unconditional support because it will pay off and allow for it in your budget. I love it, Ni Chang. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. You're so welcome. So, so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Ni Chang Liang, for coming on my show today. That was incredible. Okay, so the three big take-home points from Ni Chang. Number one, learn what you need to do for yourself in order to recharge. And it's okay if this is with or without your spouse. So ask yourself, how do we give each other space to recharge? And once you figure, figure that out, provide unconditional support for each other's hobbies, yours and your spouse's hobbies and interests, regardless of how random they are, whether they're becoming a koi judge or paddleboarding. Invest in each other in a way that provides space and unconditional love. And in the end, it will all pay off. Number two, you owe it to yourself, to your spouse, and to your loved ones to prioritize taking care of yourself so that you can show up authentically and be fully present for your loved ones and patients. Number three, mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment at any time or anywhere. You can even do it now. If you're not driving, close your eyes. If you are, leave them open. But if you're not, close your eyes. Notice your breath. Inhale through your nose like you're smelling roses. And breathe out through your mouth like blowing out birthday candles. Three to four times longer than your inhale was. And do that three to four times. After you've done those breaths, name what you are feeling, your body sensations, your emotions. Notice your thoughts about those emotions. And then transition to greater skillful action. 
as opposed to reaction. It could not have been more beautifully stated than it was by Dr. Liang. I think I took all those words from her mouth. So thank you so much. And I hope you all walk away asking yourself, how can I work on my relationship with myself so that I can thrive in medicine? How is uncertainty, fear, and anxiety affecting the care of my patients? Can I make my love to my spouse a daily game, like Ni Chang and her hubby? How do I show myself compassion? Call it out. How do you do it? And how can I reframe my thoughts so that difficult experiences become learning opportunities? And that is it, my friends. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and happy Thanksgiving weekend. I am so appreciative of you being here. And I would, if you love what you're hearing, please, please do not hesitate to write us a review. That means so much. It's actually one of the free things you can do to show your love for medicine, marriage, and money is write us a review uh, and share. Share this episode with a friend. Show it, share it on social media and subscribe. I would love to hear for you, from you and I would actually love to have comments um, and suggestions about how what you would what you want to see what kind of questions you want me to be asking the guests what you think you know i could do better or we could do here at medicine marriage and money to improve ourselves because of course as the podcast talks about we're always working on growth right personal growth so please fly away spread positivity oh one more thing because i did mention this a few podcasts ago my hubby also has his own Facebook community. Mine's called Medicine, Marriage, and Money. And if you're a physician, you can join it. My hubby's is called 39.6 Community. And he actually goes live almost every single night discussing financial topics, anything related to your car, your children, your house, your taxes, everything. He's super passionate about tax codes and real estate. So check that out. Um, I am feeling very, very thankful after this holiday weekend and I did work five days in a row. So very thankful for my health, for my job, for my, for my husband, which is why I'm mentioning him. So thank you so much. Once again, I will see you guys next week, unless you reach out to me sooner on medicinemarriageandmoney.com or my Facebook group or wherever you find me, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Love you guys so, so, so much. So much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.